please turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 is where we'll start this morning. And B, beginning in verse 14. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we we just lay ourselves before you. We place ourselves under the authority of your word, and we ask you to speak. Help us to understand what you've already spoken. May the Holy Spirit come, Father, and drive these truths deep into our heart and truly change us. Make us a new people. Bring salvation to anyone who may be here this morning and has not come alive in Christ, does not know Christ as Savior, does not know you as Father. And may you help the church be edified by what we hear. Father, we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we say a lot around here, we we try to emphasize a lot, we need to emphasize more, is is this idea, parents, you are the primary disciple makers of your kids. It's not primarily the church's job to do that for you. It's the church to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to equip you, to, to train you, to hold you accountable in, in the ways that you disciple your, your children. That's what we 
want to be as a church what we want to do. And there's a lot of ways that we do that. Some of it is just being in community together. We're having conversations with each other. We're asking questions. We're, we're being examples. We're noticing examples. And then we're asking questions like, I notice you do that. Why do you do that? How do you do that? What works for you concerning that? Um, younger parents learning from older parents. Older parents investing in younger parents. No one is the expert. Okay? None of us have arrived. We're all humble learners learning together. Um, some things work for some families. Other things work for other families. So there's a lot of grace there. And one of my favorite aspects of discipling kids is uh, as they get older, you're able to take everyday life questions and issues and they become opportunities to do deep gospel work in their heart and mind. They come to you with a question, can I do this? Can I have this? Can I buy this? Can I go there? Hang out with this person? And unknown to them, they have walked into a God-ordained, gospel-centered, disciple-making trap uh, opportunity. Well, why do you want to do that? Why do you want that? What do you desire from it? Is that a healthy desire? What are the potential ways in which they would, this could enslave you? How could believing the gospel help you avoid or escape that enslavement if it does happen? Is that wise? Is that beneficial, helpful? On and on you go, and your kids, especially in the teenage years, love those conversations. They come and ask you a simple question, and it turns into a 20-minute gospel conversation. The teenagers love that. Kidding. Now, I'm not suggesting these long discussions for everything, but occasionally and for big things. It's not just buying a swimsuit. It's not just buying a dress. It's not just going to hang out with this friend. It's not just doing that. Does it reflect or impact who you are in Christ? There's a, there's a place for more structured, formal instruction and discipline your kids, but we don't neglect the spontaneous opportunities either. This is the basic situation the believers in Corinth stumbled into with their question that Paul mentions in chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Now maybe there were some who knew like them, Paul knew there was only one God, Therefore, idols aren't real gods. Therefore, meat offered to fake gods didn't mean anything. And so it's perfectly okay to eat this food offered to idols or this meat offered to idols. And so they expected maybe, hopefully from Paul, just a quick answer. Yes. Enjoy. It's good. But Paul, being a good pastor led by the Holy Spirit, just like a good parent led by the Holy Spirit, doesn't just answer their questions, but he takes them on this theological quest in chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Corinthians. Not only answering the question, but giving them a theological foundation that will help them navigate this issue plus any other issues that will come up just like it. So today we come to the end of this section. It's not only Paul putting the finishing touches, providing his final instruction concerning the question, the issue, but in some ways it's summing up the entire issue before he moves on to much, much more complicated issues like the one we'll look at next Sunday. And so I want to not only walk through the verses today, but see them in light of this entire section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and provide what I hope and pray are some overarching principles that the Corinthians would have gotten from all this instruction, and we can also see clearly that will help us not only navigate the gray area issues that we come to in life, where it's not always clear what is right and what is wrong, but really anything can be run through these questions to help us assess our actions. Should we do this? Should we continue in this? Should we not do this? There are five questions. I want to give to you all at once, and then we'll walk through them. Questions regarding our actions. Number one, is God alone going to be worshipped? Number two, are the people in my life going to be helped or hurt? 
Number three, is God going to be glorified? Number four, is this flowing from Christ in me or just me? And number uh, four or five, is the gospel going to be advanced or hindered? Notice what questions aren't on this list. Is it fun? Can I just do whatever I want? Uh, do, do I get my way? Are my friends doing it? In fact, what's missing from these questions in a big way is the word I. Just consideration for myself. For the Corinthians, it was concerning eating food offered to idols, but it really could be anything. And that's how it is for us. So that in everything, we realize that God can be glorified, Christ can be imitated by avoiding idolatry and sin, by laying down our personal rights and freedoms out of love for our brothers and sisters and for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're after. So number one, is God alone going to be worshipped? Is it an opportunity for God alone to be worshipped? We see this beginning with Paul's admonition for them to flee from idolatry, echoing his admonition to flee from sexual immorality in chapter 6. Now they are to run away from any opportunity to worship idols. I mentioned way back in chapter 8, there are basically three ways in which these believers in Corinth would have come into contact with this meat or food offered to idols. The first way is they would actually go to the pagan temples that may have been Apollos or Aphrodite or Athena or some other god, Poseidon. They would have these little rooms to the side of the temple like a fellowship hall, and there would be a meal that had been dedicated to that god that they can participate in. That would be one way they could encounter this food. A second way would be that leftover meat that had been sacrificed to that pagan god would be sold in the marketplace. So you go to the marketplace, there's little, very little meat that could have been bought that hadn't been sacrificed to a pagan god in a Greco-Roman city like Corinth. And then the third way, you go into somebody's house and they serve you meat. More than likely, they've been offered to an idol. Not always, but more than likely. Now, back in chapter 8, we've already seen Paul acknowledge that the believers with knowledge in the church were right. There is only one God. Idols aren't real gods, so there really is no big deal about eating this meat. But, he said, for the sake of the weaker brother, for whom there is still a strong association to idolatry in eating this meat, because you love them, don't eat it. If you do, you're sinning against them, thus sinning against Christ. Now, Paul is more explicit, and he gives them a strong prohibition against one of these three encounters of this meat. Don't eat this meat if you are participating in the feast in a temple devoted to that pagan god. Don't even participate in those festivals. Flee from that. Paul appeals to their sensibility in verse 15. I'm speaking to you as sensible people, which is also another little dig at their arrogance and their knowledge because them being such sensible people should have already realized this. But again, Paul is having to tell them to do something that was so obvious and plain. Why not eat the meat that was part of the temple feast? Verse 16 through 21 tells us, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that what they sacrifice is sacrificed to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's not because Paul thinks these idols are real gods. He reaffirms what he said back in chapter 8, verse 4. They're not real gods. There's only one God. Zeus is not a real god. Hermes, Mercury, Mars, whatever Greek or Roman gods that you love to study mythology, they're not real. They're made up. 
Buddha is not a real God. Muhammad is not a real God. Ra is not a real God. Baal is not a real God. Or any of the other millions of pagan gods that billions of people have and are worshiping. There's only one God. That's it. He's the only one who really exists. But what Paul does affirm is that what happens in these pagan worship services isn't the worship of a real God, but demonic forces, demons, not human, not God, spiritual beings, fallen angels that were cast out of heaven when Satan rebelled that follow the bidding of Satan. These demons would be heavily involved in any kind of cultic worship of false gods, influencing, possibly controlling, possessing leaders or worship leaders, definitely flavoring the worship. Like We don't have time to go into this now, but it'll come up in chapter 14. Worship gatherings at pagan temples were chaotic, like Mardi Gras in New Orleans, but no rules, no police, no moral consciousness, just total indulgence. It would appear demonic to us. And Paul would say it's because it is. It is demonic. And Paul says they cannot eat the food offered in those places or share in those events, but run from it. Why? Because of who they are. They are the covenant people of Christ. Their lives do not belong to them. Their lives belong to him. And what belongs to Christ, what is in fellowship with Christ, cannot also be in fellowship with demons. And the way Paul explains this is by referring to another feast. The feast that is unique and reserved for the church alone. Communion. The Lord's Supper. And Paul explains that what happens in the Lord's table is a sharing of fellowship between Christ and his people. We are the one loaf. We are one church, many members. We are sharing in a communion meal of bread and wine or because of our prohibitionist Baptist heritage grape juice that represent the body and blood of Christ. Now, this passage is saying nothing about the bread and wine becoming anything other than bread or wine. But it's representative of the presence of Christ with us. We are participating in a meal that represents Christ. We don't need Jesus to show up physically in the bread or the wine all of a sudden for us to share in fellowship with Christ. We don't need the bread or wine to change into the body and blood of Jesus for his eternally complete salvific work to still be effective and sufficient for our salvation now and forever. Jesus, in the context of church discipline, and this verse is hardly ever quoted in the context of church discipline, but Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. I'm there. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right before he ascends into heaven, he tells them, I'm going to be with you forever. And then he leaves. In this letter, we've already seen Paul tell us, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Because we have been resurrected spiritually from being dead to alive, we are the dwelling place of God's Spirit. Where is God? Where is the presence of Christ today in the, earth, in, the, in the world? It's in the body of Christ. It's in the word of God. That same spirit that empowered everything Christ did now lives in us, which is why Jesus could say, Lo, I am with you always. Because he and the spirit are both God. We have the spirit of God in us. We have Christ in us. So we don't have to have anything happen to the bread and the wine or the juice for Christ to be in our midst. He is in our midst because we're here. And wherever we go, Christ is with us, and Christ is in us. This meal, however, is a weekly reminder, a covenantal renewal feast between Jesus and his people, representative of the basis for our life now and forever. You are alive physically. You are alive spiritually because of Jesus. 
that He is alive. And He is upholding, sustaining your life physically and spiritually. You're, you're not still living physically and spiritually because you're young or healthy or you take your vitamins or you work out because you got good rest last night. Because you're still alive physically and spiritually because Jesus is sustaining your life until He's done. And then your life ends physically and you go be with Him forever. And one day get a glorified body. And so weekly we're reminded that our life is because of Christ. And sharing in this meal is representative of what made that possible. The, the body, the, the blood of Christ, the person and the work of Jesus. That's what makes our life possible. Not only the life that we share individually with Christ, but the life corporately we share with Christ. This is not just me and Jesus. This is us together, the body of Christ. The unity that we have because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is. And weekly we're reminded when we eat the bread and we, and we <laughs> eat the juice-soaked bread, maybe one day we'll drink the cup and eat the bread. We're reminded of this life that we have in Christ. Each week, and we, the reason we do it every single week is so we will remember because we're so prone to forget. The reason we invite you to sit and hear a prayer read and spend a few minutes in prayer and repentance isn't so you'll reach some level of remorse or penance before you come and get the bread and the juice, but so your mind and heart can be quickened again to who Christ is and what Christ has done. You can, you can sit for a few minutes and reflect on that, or you can run to the table as soon as we say come. And the reason we ask you to come and grab the elements and wait and let's take this meal together is because we are one body, many, many members, but one body. We want to share in this remembrance together. And every time we gather and share in this fellowship with each other, we're sharing in this fellowship with Christ. Not because there's anything special about the bread or the juice. It doesn't matter if we make it ourselves at home, the special unleavened bread, or we just use pita bread or hot dog buns. There's nothing special about the bread. We'll never use hot dog buns. Don't worry. There's everything special about Christ. He is what makes this meal significant. Because he is in us. We are his people. So how could a people with that kind of identity and fellowship with the one true God and Jesus Christ also share in a meal in which demonic forces are being honored or demonic forces are influencing the worship? Like it can't happen. It's the same reason that we only invite people who are professing believers to come and share in this meal. Because if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't professed that publicly, have participated in the body of Christ, then, then you don't have Christ in you. Why are you sharing in this meal? You, you need to repent and believe in Jesus, and you can do that today. You can do that as you walk to the table to get the elements. Christ is not alive in me, but today I realize I'm a sinner, and I see the beauty of Jesus alone as my Savior. Today I'm turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, and, and he's, he's alive in me. And now for the first time, I want to really share in this meal. That can happen today. That's why we ask you to examine yourselves and, not, and to share in this meal and in repentance and not openly, brazenly indulging in sin. It's not that we're ever sinless when we share in this meal, but as far as we know, we're walking in a state of repentance, turning from sin and trusting His Christ because we don't want to share in this meal with sin being what we love. We want to share in this meal with Christ being what we love and sin being what we hate because our sin made that necessary. 
the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So we want to encourage you to walk in repentance and not be flippant about your sin as you share in this meal. We want to be captivated by Christ. We want Him to be worshipped and not our sin or demons. God will not, has not, will never ever share His glory or worship with any other being in the universe. He will not share the affection of His people. It's all Him or not Him. You cannot just have a part of Him and save another part of your heart for another false God. He is a jealous God. He will not allow that. And He will continually pursue you and work in you to crush anything else you may be worshiping other than Him. Sometimes your life is a mess because you are worshiping idols and He is crushing those idols. And it's going to be hard until you turn from those idols and trust in Jesus alone. He is a jealous God, Paul says in verse 22. You're not really going to provoke him, are you? You're not as strong as you think you are, Paul says in verse 22. So the first question we have to consider when navigating any issue is, will God alone be worshipped, adored, honored, cherished, loved, or will some of that be directed to someone or something else? Here in Monroe, for example, you may meet someone of a different religion. In our area, it could be uh, someone who's Hindu, Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness. You begin to spend time with them for the sake of the gospel. Great, please do that. But in the, in, in the course of that relationship, they say, well, why don't you come and join me in one of my worship services? Because they're trying to convert you too, right? And you say, eh, I can't really do that because I, I can't join you in worshiping your God. Or let me bring somebody, we'll stand in the back and watch you worship because I I can't join you in worshiping your God. And here's why. You walk them through it. That's an obvious example of, of avoiding idolatry and worshiping God alone and making your decisions. But the reality is everyone struggles with worshiping someone or someone something other than God. Placing your affections, hopes, desires on someone or something else. That is idolatry. So as we engage in relationships with each other, we become more and more aware of what this looks like in our life, and we want to take action not to encourage or help people in the worship of their idols. So as we're making decisions about what is okay or not okay to do, we don't want to do anything that would encourage the worship of false gods. So if you share with someone that your struggle with, is with making an idol out of food, we want to be careful about helping you fight that and not indulge in the worship of that food. If you struggle with making an idol out of rest and comfort, success, applause, family, work, money, we want to love you enough to help you worship God and not those idols. So as we make decisions, we're assessing how does that impact others around us? How does it impact my own heart? We may do that by pointing your heart to either the surpassing greatness of God over all idols, or we may help you just see the brokenness of your idols. Why are you chasing that? That's not going to satisfy. It is going to let you down. What we don't want to do is to make your idol appear to be better than God or more satisfying than God. So the first question to ask when evaluating our actions, will this lead to a worship of God? Or it could in some way we're not even aware of lead us to idolatry, lead us to love someone or something more than God, to place our hope, our trust, our joy in someone or something more than God. Which potential idols could be worshipped by doing this? How do I make sure God alone is worshipped instead? The second question is this. Are the people in my life going to be helped or hurt? Verse 23. Everything is permissible. 
but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it, out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? Essentially, you're asking this question about your actions. How is this going to affect the people in my life? This was the big concern of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And now through these various scenarios he describes, it's his main concern. How is this going to impact the people in my life? Now, he's taken off the table, eating meat offered to idols in pagan temples. He says, don't do it. So one of those three scenarios is off the table. But the other two scenarios, namely, what happens if you get invited over to the house of a non-believer and they serve you this meat? Like, you want that. You want to be in the homes of non-believers for the sake of the gospel. What happens if they serve you some of this meat? Well, Paul first quotes what is probably an expression of the Corinthians. Everything is permissible. They probably say this all the time. In other words, the knowledgeable Corinthians would say this. I can do whatever I want. All things are okay. I'm free in Christ. I can eat this meat. I can drink this drink. I can be with these people. But Paul adds two qualifiers. Not all things are beneficial. Yeah, everything is permissible, but not all things are beneficial. You have to admit that. Not all things build up others. It's not just enough to say, is it right or wrong? How are my actions going to affect those around me? Will they be helped or will they be hurt? It's not a position of, it's a position of humility, being others focused more than yourself. It's not just about indulging your rights and privileges, but living concerned about those in your life. This is what he says in verse, that's what he says in verse 24. Then you get this basic principle in verse 25 and 26. It's okay to eat any of that meat sold in the market. God created it. God rules over it. It's his meat, not these idols. He made the meat. So receive it with thanksgiving and enjoy the meat in worship and adoration to God and his glory. He picks this line of thought up in verse 29 and 30. Why would anyone's conscience infringe upon Paul enjoying this meat with thanksgiving? It shouldn't matter. See, you see, this is Paul gently pushing along the weaker Christians. The ones for whom this was a problem. So far, he's not done this. Chapters 8, 9, so far in 10, he's not done this. He's put all the responsibility on those with knowledge to give up their rights and their freedoms out of love for their weaker brothers. But he also wants to instruct and push along these weaker Christians to get them to the point where they realize these, these idols are nothing. There's only one God. You've left that behind when you've come to Christ. It's really okay to eat this meat. Not forcing you, but gently, pastorally bringing you along, instructing you. He then gives a couple of case study scenarios in verse 27 and 28. So let's say you're eating in the house of unbeliever. They serve you this meat, and they say nothing about where the meat came from. Came from. What should you do? Raise your hand. Excuse me. Where did this meat come from? I can't eat until you tell me. No. Paul says, don't make an issue out of it if they don't make an issue out of it. Eat it. Don't you want to be in the life of this unbeliever for the sake of the gospel? Don't raise a stink because of your issues of conscience about the origin of the meat. 
But then he says, what if someone says to you the meat's been offered to an idol? Maybe it's the host because they know you're a Christian. They know it could be an issue. Maybe it's a weaker brother who's at the meal with you. Hey, don't you know this has been offered to an idol? Well, if it becomes an issue, then don't eat it. Eat something else. So that the unbeliever or the weaker brother is not confused about where your allegiance lies. Don't make it an issue. Enjoy the meat. If it's made an issue, then don't eat. If you're worried about offending the unbeliever... It, like, let's say there's nothing else to eat except for food offered to idols. Okay, well, I'm just going to fast. Why in the world are you fasting? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. He's truly who my allegiance lies with. This concern for the other is picked up in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. It's not actually possible to please everyone, not actually possible to not offend everyone. Jesus himself couldn't even do that. Paul would say later in Romans 12, as far as it is possible, live at peace with all men. But it is always, always possible to live concerned about others. Even if you can't please them all or not offend them all, it's always possible to live with a mentality, I don't want to offend them, I want to please them. In a healthy, not not worshiping their applause kind of way, but building bridges for the sake of the gospel kind of way. That's the aim of this instruction throughout these chapters. Be all things to all people so you might see some of them come to know Christ. Look out for the interests of others, not just your own. So how will your actions impact those around you? Corinth was full of disunity and strife because of their pride and arrogance that led them to only be concerned with getting their way out. I have this freedom in Christ. I'm going to do what I want. I don't really care about anybody else. Exercising their own freedom with no concern how it may affect their brother or sister. Is it okay to do it? Can God be worshipped? Yes. Ask that question. Okay, how will it impact the people around me? How will it impact the person far from God, the weaker brother? Remember the context of this instruction, especially chapter 8. You had believers with knowledge eating this meat offered to idols. You had weaker believers that didn't have this knowledge watching this happen. They didn't feel like they could do that because they made an association between the meat and idolatry. And so the, the, the risk was they would join them in eating this meat offered to idols, not because their mind had changed and they came to see the light. They still believed it was sinful. But they saw a stronger brother eating the meat and the reaction was, well, that's sinful, but I guess it's okay to sin. So I'm going to go ahead and go eat the meat with them. Their mind wasn't changed. They were being led into sin, what they knew was sin. So the, the, the question for us is, do our actions lead other Christians to say, oh, that behavior is sinful, but sin must now be okay? Because they're doing it. We're not, it's impossible to answer all the different ways this can show up in your life. I mean, it's so many scenarios, so much nuance, so much dependence on the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, being in community with God's people, having conversations is necessary for us to navigate all the ways this could show up in life. So I don't even want to give you this scenario and that scenario because it's so complicated. But it's not going to happen if we're not in close relationship with fellow believers having intentional conversations about how they feel about particular issues. There's, 
There, there's so many ways. Are, the, the question is this. Are we even asking the question, how does my actions impact the other people around me? Or are we just, I'm just kind of doing what I want to do. Not really concerned about other people. We're so busy with keeping ourselves happy doing whatever we want, we're not even asking how our actions could be affecting them. Or sometimes when we, we ask questions about other people, the questions are, what do they think of me? Are they impressed with me? Do they like me? Which are really just questions about ourselves, right? No, no. How are my actions helping this person love Christ more? Am I living in such a way that this believer or non-believer is drawn to Christ? Christ is attractive to them. Or am I a repellent for Christ? Oh, that's what Christians do? I don't want anything to do with that. These are the ways we assess our actions. These are the ways we make decisions. Am I going to create an aroma that's going to draw people to Christ because it's beautiful and good the way that we live? Or am I going to put up walls and push people away because I'm just indulging? I'm just selfish. Third question. I know you're thinking, we're going to be here at 2 o'clock. These go really fast. Third question is, uh, is God going to be glorified? Verse, 30, uh, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Often that is quoted as in all things of life, even the mundane things like eating and drinking, glorify God. But if you understand this question or, or this truth in context, in these three chapters, it is the issue. It's not mundane issues. It is the issue. Fundamental. Because for the Corinthians, if they weren't careful, eating or drinking would lead to idolatry and the worship of demons. So yes, it is in the mundane things of life, eating and drinking, but it's in all of life, everything, the big things and the small things. Someone or something other than God could get his glory, and our actions must always fall in the category of actions which can lead to the worship of God and the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, huh, that's thick. That's, that's a deep well. Entire books have been written just about that concept, the glory of God. Difficult to define. Someone wrote, it's, it's like the word beauty. Hard to define, but you know it when you see it. But it's not as subjective as beauty, because what some people think is beautiful, other people don't. Um, if you understand God's holiness as the perfect outworking of God's character and nature, that, that part of God that makes God God and nothing else in all of creation like him. Creator, creation. That's God's holiness. Those attributes that make God God. Then God's glory is the beautiful shining forth of those attributes where you can see it. You can feel it. And it's glorious and beautiful. It'd be kind of like in our solar system, we have one sun. So the holiness of God would be like, what is the sun? It's a ball of gas. The glory of God would be like the heat and the light we feel from the sun. There's nothing like the sun in our entire solar system. And the glory of God is like the heat and the light we feel from it. That, oh man, love it. Except right now when it's so hot, we're just running the air conditioning. But it's God's character on display, the glory of God. And so in the actions we choose, we have the opportunity to let God's character and nature shine forth 
for other people to see the beauty of God's character and nature from our actions, for them to feel the beautiful nature of God from our actions and to appreciate it. Like we have maybe different definitions of beauty, but you're not going to find many people on earth who don't look at a sunset or look at a beautiful ocean beach or majestic mountains and aren't in awe. Like, okay, that, that's amazing. And we have the same opportunity to demonstrate the character and nature of God through our actions, to let God's glory be seen through us. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2, 11 and through 12, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and in exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Imagine that. Living amongst lost people in such a way that they're calling us evildoers, but they really do see the glory of God through our actions. Even later in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Our worship gatherings like this should be done in such a way that an unbeliever who is with us should be able to say, God is here. I don't believe what they believe, but God's here. It's not just what we do, but it's the way we do it that reveals this quality. Are our behaviors flavored by the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Are we revealing the nature of God's kingdom, which is opposite of the kingdoms of this world? Are we truly living as citizens of another nation? Are we just falling in line like everybody else in the kingdoms of our world? Loving power and prestige and fame and, and greed. Are we loving those who love us back only? But are we loving those who are difficult to love or could be even our enemies? How are we demonstrating this otherness that can only be explained because God lives in us? Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews gives an example. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. In other words, some of these Christians were being persecuted, put imprisoned. Other believers didn't stay away but went to them and were associated with them and then were losing their own possessions, being caught up in the persecution of other people. Who does this other than God's people? People with whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. So in everything we do, are we doing life in a way that can ultimately only be explained by the presence of God in us, which goes hand in hand with the fourth question, is this action flowing from Christ in me or is it just me doing it? Should I do this? Well, is it Christ in you that's driving that? Or is it just you, just your flesh? Verse 11.1, Paul said, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul says with confidence, imitate me. But the confidence is only rooted in the second part of that verse, as I imitate Christ. That's why he can say that. As long as I'm following Christ, follow me. And of course, Christ is the example of someone who lived to worship God, glorify God, lived with an others-oriented life, who gave up all of his rights and freedoms and privileges to lay down his life for the benefit of others. And guess what? When we come alive in Christ and Christ comes alive in us, our lives look just the same, more and more. 
And if you're like, my life doesn't look like that. If Christ is in you, it will. Because he's not going to quit. He's not going to quit on you. He's going to keep coming after you. Building you up through the word of God and the spirit of God and tearing down anything other than Christ that you are worshiping and relying on. It's what he promises to do in Romans 8, 29. He's predestined that we will be conformed to the image of his son. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He's not going to quit on his children. He's going to keep chipping away until more and more of Christ shines through your life. And that, that, is, that is who we are. That's what we're going to be. So the big question like 15, 20 years ago, the WWJD question, what would Jesus do? That can be overused, abused, no doubt. And what kind of toothpaste would Jesus use? Crest, Colgate? What combo would Jesus order at Chick-fil-A? I mean, we know he would eat at Chick-fil-A, but what would he eat at Chick-fil-A? This is not a call to a life of bondage where we have to agonize over every single decision. But as we walk with Christ, as we love and desire Christ, he's shaping and forming our affections so that more and more what we love is what he loves. As we walk in maturity, we begin to more and more desire what he desires so that they they become in sync. All of a sudden, we're loving and desiring things that we seem to love and desire, but they more and more reflect what Christ loves and desires. So we can begin to say, well, do what you love to do because you've been shaped in Christ in such a way that what you love to do is what Christ loves to do. That's where he's taking us. That's where we're going. And he's not going to quit or give up on you until he more and more gets you on that path. That is the work of the Spirit sanctifying us. And the more we understand who we are as a child of God and and Jesus loved to do the will of his Father in heaven, so we love more and more to do the will of our Father in heaven, the more our life is in step with our Father, so we can ask those questions. This action that I want to do is definitely flowing from the life of Christ in me. It's not just my flesh wanting the adoration or affection of people or wanting to worship this idol or whatever. And then lastly, is the gospel going to advance, be advanced or hindered? We see that at the very end of verse 33. Paul's living this others-oriented life so that they may be saved. This is the key emphasis at the end of chapter 9, Paul arranging his life around the advancement of the gospel. You can go back and listen to those teachings. He didn't want anything to do anything that would hinder the gospel, but order his life and relate and love people in such a way that the gospel is getting to as many people as possible. So, so simply, is this the orientation of your life? What does your life revolve around? Who sets the direction and course of your life? Is it the worship and adoration and affection of God? Is it the glory of God? Is is it the life of Christ being seen in our lives? Or are we more concerned with others or ourselves? Taking care of me, myself, and I. Are we laying down personal preferences to see the gospel advance? Are we just living to indulge? For the Corinthians, they needed to see what they may have thought was a seemingly small issue. Is it okay to eat this certain kind of meat? They needed to see the seemingly small issue in light of the big life direction questions and theological issues. And for us, it's the same way. The gospel saturates all of our lives. There's no part of your life that you can go off and section off and saying, this is for me. No, Jesus is coming to invade that as well. So that in every single relationship, every minute of the day, every thought that you have, everything that we do, it is flavored and saturated with the presence of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
This is what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ, to have this orientation to our life. And this is what makes us distinct as his people. There's, there's no other people in the world like this. It's just the church, the people of God. And we are plan A to get this hope and joy to other people. There is no plan B. That's it. Who's going to reach your family? Who's going to reach your neighbors? Who's going to reach the people you work with, the people you go to school with? Who's going to reach the, reach the people of Monroe? Look around the room. We're it. We are sent by God with this message, with this life. And there's no plan B. Jesus created you knowing you would be here at this moment in time for this purpose, knowing that he would be alive in you. He's not up there fretting. How am I going to reach Monroe with the gospel? He's not worried. He has his people in place, not just the crossing, but other churches throughout our city. If we would join him in this mission, as we join him in this mission. And all we have to do is make ourselves available for his spirit to work in us and through us. You don't don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to learn a bunch of stuff, read a bunch of books. You have everything you need. You have Christ. You have the word of God, the spirit of God, the community of God. So let's go. Everyday living in such a way. Father, my life is your life. Father, my time is your time. This job is your job, Father. My car is your car. My house is your house. Everything that I am, everything that I have belongs to him. So how do you want me to use it today to share your love with somebody, to share the gospel with somebody, to spread the name and fame of Christ? Father, thank you so much that this is who you've made us to be. Thank you that every week we get to gather like this, not just on Sundays, but our mission communities, our DNA groups, with the people of God to be reminded of who we are and what you've called us to do. Thank you we get to share in this meal in a few minutes to be reminded again of the person and work of Christ. Uh, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who, who hasn't had this life, this is not their life, that you in their heart and their mind right now would expose them to the brokenness of the sinful life that they are pursuing, that you would proclaim the gospel to their heart and mind, and right now they would trust in Jesus. Right now would be the, the day of their salvation. Right now they would come alive in Christ. And let them proclaim that to us and sharing in this meal and sharing with us. And help us all, Father. Help us all turn from sin and turn to Jesus and experience this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.